This podcast is brought to you by All Things Film. <coughs> no, it, it really is. All Things Film, the web's premier collection of independent movie and TV related podcasts. For more, check out www.allthingsfilm.co.uk or search All Things Film on iTunes, Stitcher or TuneIn Radio. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Podcast on Fire 192, and this is entitled, this episode, Gambling Season, God of Gamblers and God of Gamblers Return. So welcome to this retrospective of part of the God of Gamblers series, its sequels and spin-offs. I don't think you can capture everyone in a, in a tiny series, if you will. This is obviously gambling, huge, a hugely popular real life uh, occupation, or um, on not not occupation for for some. They do it as uh, on on their free time for Hong Kong people and in Asia in general. And it's also transferred to the screen, as you well know. And in the terms of God of Gamblers, it was transferred to the screen by the man who arguably did it the best, while also adhering to the comedy and action tradition of this golden period of Hong Kong cinema of the 80s and 90s. And his name is Wong Jing. And he struck box office gold in 1989 with God of Gamblers, starring superstar Chai Yun-fat in his iconic role of Dawson, the God of Gamblers. And the movie also starred Andy Lau and Joey Wong. A few Stephen Chow vehicles in the same vein were made around this time and uh, subsequently. But in 1994, the team of Chow and Wong Jing got together for God of Gamblers Return. And those are the two movies we picked for episode one out of three in this God of Gamblers retrospective. And I'm Kennedy, and with me is fellow and former dormant podcaster and podcasting host, now back in the saddle as a podcaster. So I welcome back in a double kind of fashion, Paul Fox, live from Hong Kong. So say hi, buddy. Hello, sir. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm excellent. I'm glad to have another Asian cinema podcast back on the block. And certainly always good to chat with you on here. Like you didn't turn your back on us just because you're back in the saddle as producer again. <laughs> like you, like uh, this was not your uh, second plan. You still have time for us, which I appreciate. And uh, I, I always like a Hong Kong perspective on things, even though you might not be a rampant gambler or anything, but you're certainly a fan of some of the gambling movies. So, so it fits. Absolutely, and and I'm as pleased as bunch to be here too. I I mean I love podcast on fire, but particularly I love the Hong Kong retrospectives and the focus on you know uh, older Hong Kong films because that's really my passion. I mean I talk about current films in in uh, our current podcast and um, even over on you know the spinoff show here, the Dynasty Report. But my true passion lies in the films of the '70s, the '80s, and the '90s. So. Uh, thanks for having me, and, and it's just a pleasure to always be able to talk with you about these films. Not a problem, and it fits the profile of Podcast on Fire also, because we uh, we transformed this into a show where we talk about recognizable movies, classics or not, but sometimes we do these retrospective-themed retrospectives we've done 
Milky Way uh, treasures are called one uh, retrospective that we talked of the Milky Way movies up until the mission essentially like because that that's my favorite uh, era of uh, the Johnny Toe and White Cowboy movies uh, and uh, now it's gambling season and uh, but before we dive into that uh, let's talk about the you know former dormant podcaster now back in the saddle podcaster of East Screen West Screen is it still called that by the way you haven't changed the name right yeah, we've kept the name, uh, we've kept the website, and we, Kevin and I had a lot of discussion about, you know, how to how to try and take the show forward, uh, given the restrictions he's under in his in his current position. Because that was uh, just to take us back. That was kind of the reason you stopped doing podcasts because Kevin Ma, your, your co-host, got a job at uh, Filmbiz Asia. Is that it? Yes, yes. So he he's you know he's reporting on news and he's you know interviewing people in the industry and he doesn't. He felt it wasn't uh, good form, basically. To so Wong Jing sucks. Like yeah. I'm, I'm Kevin Ma, <laughs> and the day after it's not going to be pretty. So we decided uh, at the time, uh, I guess like a year and a half ago, to just uh, put the show on hiatus and and let him get situated in his role. And I had a, a newborn at the time, and uh, I needed to get situated in my role as a father and all the responsibilities that comes with that. And We've just, you know, we've always been in contact. We still go and see movies, and and you know, we we're always like, oh, you know, we got to get the podcast going. What should we do? Should we start something new? Should we? I've never really felt comfortable just, you know, talking about films by myself. I, I knew I didn't want to do a solo show. Yeah, and we, I think we got to a place where we we said we can do a show. We can slim it down from what our old format was, where we would talk about pretty much every movie we could. Um, on a given week, you know, for Hong Kong releases and for Hollywood films that caught our eye. And so we've trimmed that down. The, the format is he's going to cover news for the week and I'm going to do one local film review for the week. Um, so primarily it's a mostly East screen focus, but I think with some films we may come back and do a West screen episode from time to time. So we decided we'll keep the name and we'll just trim the format and trim the fat and hopefully people will still be entertained. It's, it's not like people are going to call you on that, like, hey, 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 the name doesn't make sense anymore. I think the name is uh, a general kind of neutral name, too. It's not... To be honest, I didn't want to create a brand new feed. And it's been a challenge. I mean, uh, technically, just in a year and a half, so much has changed. I've gone through, during that time, I want to say two operating system upgrades. A lot of the software I used to use uh, has changed. Some of it's no longer valid and won't work with the current operating system and so i had to learn some new ways of, of doing things so it's been a slow and rough start we're, we're not to the point in terms of rolling out shows where i'd like to be yet but hopefully you know within a month or so we'll get our groove back and hey don't abandon the michael wong sound bites okay that there's a there's a plan for a soundboard uh i've kept i've kept all the old sound bites i just have to get them into a new piece of software and get that software integrated uh, into the mixer that I currently use. And I, I think I've figured out a solution, but it requires me to buy um, some extra software, which is, is, on, is, is on the books as soon as I get my paycheck. Yeah, you got them right. It's on the books. <laughs> I'm not listening to that show unless I know there's po- a possibility of, I have my own car. And Michael Wong is on Instagram and, uh, nowadays, and that, that's a delight for me. He, you know, it's, uh, he's Michael Wong on Instagram. That, that's as much as I can say. It, it's what you expect. Yeah, and and for those who are interested, he has a brand new CD out uh, called Airways of Love. So uh, (laughs) check it out on YouTube, and if you like it, you can buy it. 
you can. I don't think I'm going to buy it. <laughs> but I like that he did it. You know, Michael, you know, he was, I'm going to do this. You know, why not? I mean, I'm, I've n- nothing to lose. I'm completely confident in, in myself and securing my own body. I'm going to write the lyrics as well. And they're going to like make, make a love song that is equal about love making and flying a plane. Like, it all fits, man. Wonderful. Thank you for East Green, West Green. You're not like, as a podcast akin, uh, in the way you came back, akin to like, these sports profiles some musicians that say oh we're gonna retire we're never coming back and then they come out of retirement to pay off more like their mortgage and their yachts and what have you yeah, like if it, only yeah so <laughs> it's not it's not high floating like that so but welcome back i'm hugely uh I'm, 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 i was hugely um satisfied to see you pop up you know I, I i never heard it like beforehand any rumblings or anything and uh so so that, that was good very very happy to have you back Thank you. All right, let's go into the contact information really quick and then talk God of Gamblers. And this is Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network. We are located on podcastonfire.com. This show about Hong Kong movies is available on there, along with other shows about Japanese movies, sleazy movies, Taiwanese movies, and a variety of bonus episodes are up there as well. Email us if you have any questions or feedback, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Our Facebook presences are in the form of our page, facebook.com forward slash POF network that you can leave us a like on and also discuss with us in the discussion group by typing in Podcast on Fire Network in the Facebook search bar and uh, we have some uh, general discussion and show updates and obviously when we post shows you'll find that in the group as well. Our Twitter handle is at Podcast on Fire, so updates are there as well. I write about Hong Kong movies, Taiwanese movies, Godfrey Ho Ninja movies, and various other genres at So Good Reviews, and my video reviews are at SleazyKVideo.com, and my Twitter handle is at So Good Reviews. And the Podcast on Fire is available on iTunes, and if you are an avid user, a continual and regular user, please uh, take uh, the time to leave um, an honest uh, star rating and even... Uh, uh, spare a minute or two to uh, leave us a small written review. One or two sentences is perfectly fine, and we would love to hear from you about uh, what you thought of the show. And finally, on my end, you can also stream, and you can also stream us on Stitcher Radio. They have an online presence, but this movie's way to stream us on Stitcher Radio is through the applications available on the Apple App Store and Google Play. And for reference sake, Paul, we talked of East Screen, West Screen, but where are you located on the web, sir? Yeah, you can just uh, check out our website at uh, kongcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. Um, same name on Twitter. Right on. And we'll uh, place those links in the show post. And in the meantime, you're going to hear some music. And this music, I'm, I hope anyway, listeners, is quite familiar to you. It's uh, iconic music as well. And if it, if it's not familiar to you, maybe you'll get in the mood to check out God of Gamblers. Uh, so uh, see um Listen in and say, listen to our review if you haven't seen it and see if it suits your tastes. But uh, quite a beloved film. We'll share our opinions after that musical break. So we'll be right back. Welcome back, and the first 
movie of this retrospective is the one and only God of Gamblers from 1989. I have a slight strong suspicion that the Chinese title is Dawson, literally, but I might be wrong. Uh, you're, you're, you're correct, yes. Right, so it's named after its character and no, no tricky business like that. And plot from the Love HK film review of the film, Giant Fat stars in one of his most famous roles as legendary professional gambler Ko Chun, who's dubbed the God of Gamblers because of his insane ability to beat the odds at the gambling arts. This includes counting cards, hearing dice, psychological in- intimidation, and outright ch- chicanery. Is that how you pronounce it? I, I, I haven't even seen that word, but hey, hey, there you go. Uh, all bets are off as long as Kochun comes up roses. Unfortunately, Kochun gets brain damage when he falls into a juvenile trap set by two-bit gambler Knife, played by Andy Lau, who is trying to set up an Indian guy he can't stand. Kochun ends up reverting to a childlike state where he can only be pacified by chocolate. And that's what they name him, because they don't know his name, so he's named Chocolate for large parts of the movie. Then he helps out Knife and his girl, played by Joey Wong, by earning him a bundle. However, Kochun's enemies wants to do him in and will stop at nothing to gain their revenge, even if it means offing someone who's obviously not all there. Some slight background, we, we don't have a lot of like bios or like production background, but some slight background I think it's suitable to uh, throw out there. Uh, and uh, this was a box office hit at the time, earning 37 million Hong Kong dollars in little over a month of play, open mid-December. Spontaneous question, is that still uh, a lucrative release window for movies in general, Hong Kong or not, Paul? Do, have you have, do you have any uh, interpretation of that? Yeah, they usually have a couple big movies um uh, before the Christmas break, but then they'll, of course, we have the um, Chinese New Year films uh, about uh, a month and a half later. Yeah, for for some reason they didn't place this at that time. Nor the sequel. The sequel came out mid December as well. So, uh, uh, but maybe in nineteen eighty nine, China Fat had about three or four other Lunar New Year comedies going anyway. So, and Wong Jing as well. So maybe it's not a huge loss to miss out on a Lunar New Year window. Uh, this was. Uh, not a hugely nominated film. It got one nomination at the Hong Kong Film Awards, Best Actor for Chiang Fat, who won anyway in the same category because he was nominated for his role in Johnny Toe's melodrama All About Ah Long. I think it's like the second or third time Chiang Fat was nominated against himself and won. The Year City on Fire and An Autumn's Tale came out. At least those two performances were nominated and I think he won for City on Fire that year. And uh, one in Taiwan for An Autumn's Tale. Had a good run and it deserved a run as well, Chiang Fat. And uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, uh, sequels and spin-offs uh, in quite fairly hefty numbers were produced. But Chiang Fat only donned the role twice in this and his character's sequel, God of Gambler's Return, which we'll talk about in the second half. And I might be wrong here, so let's fast forward. From Vegas to Macau, is that Ko Chun, Dozan, God of Gambler's, or is it a different character? Um, it's a, it's a different character, uh, who knows, uh, the, the Ko-chan character. And I, I don't want, I don't want to give too much away because there are, there are some surprises in there that, uh, that do tie back to the God of Gambler film. So, so let's just say for now that he's donned it twice, kind of them, right? Yeah. Twice, twice firmly, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Uh, God of Gambles is quite a long film, at a little of uh, over two hours. Uh, and back in the, in the day, at least on Laserdisc and VHS from uh, Maya, there was an approximately 
a 12-minute shorter version floating about. I don't have any details on cuts. Uh, there was such on a website, um, a giant fat fan website that is no longer online. But there's been cases before with various movies in Hong Kong where they for Laserdisc shortened it to fit it on one disc when they deemed it to be... Because with Laserdiscs, sometimes box office smash movies were granted a two-disc edition. Several uh, Stephen Chow movies have two discs on Laserdisc. But in this case, they wanted to cram it in on one, and 125 minutes was a bit too long, so they removed 12 minutes, partly because of that. And I think the VHS was shorter as well. And the subsequent first DVD release, based on one of these older masters, was also shortened. So uh, for a while it was not available uncut, but nowadays with the DVD at least that was out there, the big remastered DVD, that is fully uncut, uh, the full version. And uh, that's the one you should seek out. And we'll, we'll talk of availability firmly again. But uh, let's get into a review and uh, let's uh, hear your short opinion first of God of Gamblers, Paul. Well, this is a great film uh, in my in my history with Hong Kong films. I had the very good fortune of seeing this uh, when it was released. Um, not in Hong Kong, they had it. Uh, I was, at that time, I was living in the states, but uh, there was a theater chain owned by uh, a Chinese owner, and so on the weekends, Friday nights midnight and Saturday nights midnight, he would show Hong Kong movies, and uh, that's how I initially got into want, being able to see Hong Kong movies kind of in real time. It, there's usually a bit of a delay. So I think it was like, I want to say it was like January or or so when we got it uh, in Florida because, you know, they wouldn't be distributed at the same time they're getting distributed in Hong Kong. But uh, That's not too bad. Yeah, pretty quickly we would see uh, some, of, some of the current stuff that was, that was rolling around. Did, did they do this amusing double bills where they have like two completely unrelated movies like uh, some Crab Bruce Lai movie and then God of Gamblers as well? No, it was just, you know, week to week. You never knew. Uh, usually they would have a poster of what was coming the next week. But at the time, this was all new to me. I didn't know, you know, Chow Yun-Fat. I didn't know Andy Lau. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started to, to, to gain some recognition because you'd see these same faces, you know, start to pop up in movies. And this was one of the one of the early ones I saw because um, I want to say it was 1988 when I first sort of got into, uh, start, you know, and I, I, I basically on a fluke found this cinema and started going every week. And I was like the only non-Chinese guy that would go every week. And, uh, and uh, they'd recognize me because you know, I'd be there every Friday. And it was great. And uh, this, I mean, I'm not a gambler. I don't enjoy gambling. I've been to Macau a couple times just to hang out at the hotels and, and stuff. And, and I, don't, I, I don't find enjoyment in gambling because I lose everything. I mean, I'm, I'm just not, not a person who wins things. And so I've never really enjoyed gambling, which is odd because I do like games and, and gaming. But I loved this movie and it, it was just something that I'd never, you know, I, I'd seen gam- movies about gambling before, you know, things like The Sting and, and stuff. Uh, but nothing like this. This just kind of totally knocked my socks off back when I saw it. And to me, it, it remains one of the films that if anybody I know doesn't know anything about Hong Kong cinema, it's one of the ones that I would ask them to watch first because I think it's, you know, it's a modern film. It's not a period piece. It's not a, you know, it's not a Bruce Lee thing. It's not a Shaw thing. It's something that I think is fairly approachable and still very, very entertaining. 
and they don't play mahjong for two hours like a fat choice spirit like that is very local like that that was a movie that i couldn't get into because i had no idea what was going on but here it's approachable as you said very much so i, I agree i mean no two ways about it a classic hong kong film where the wong jing formula of wacky comedy and the era's action style and the era's prime leading man chai fat they bring it all home and he brings it home it's one of the few times and i like wong jing in general but it's one of the few times i feel wong jing feels confident as a director you can see it on screen that he's got firm control of this movie it's not his first movie about gambling if you go back and look at his filmography his his very first directorial credit is uh challenge of the gamesters which was like uh 81 when when he worked at uh, shaw brothers uh, as a matter of fact if you watch that film it's very much a Shaw Brothers film. It's it, you, it doesn't really feel like a Wong Jing film at all. It's like they said, all right, you stick to Shaw Brothers shooting style, and and you you basically go by the numbers. And so, but you know, he's he, you know he's I think before this he also had uh, one of the Casino Raider movies. He had uh, oh, you're right, Casino Tycoon was later. Casino Raiders was was at this time. You're right, eighty eight to eighty nine. Um, so he's done, you know, he's dabbled in in the narrative of, of gambling stuff um, uh, qu- quite often over his career, even before getting up to this one. But I still think this one is, is sort of a, a pinnacle moment. And I defend Wong Jing. I mean, you know, he's got a very bad rap. I talk about him with my students and they say, you know, you know, who do you like, Wong Kar Wai, Wong Jing? I say, I love Wong Jing, you know, and they, they laugh. Do they even know who Wong Jing is? Your students? Yeah, they know. They know because he, you know, he still has a heavy hand in producing a lot of stuff, and and there's a lot of cheapies that get released now, of course, and his name's attached to a lot of that. And uh, especially, he's very controversial recently because of all the politics and stuff that's going yeah. on. Yeah, not really. Don't 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 need to get into that here. But without Wong Jing, we don't have a lot of classic Chow Yun Fat, a lot of classic Andy Lau, a lot of classic Stephen Chow. You know, and he set the platform for a lot of their careers. Uh, sure, you know they might have gone on to do amazing things beyond him, but you know we've got to give him a, a tip of the hat for all that stuff he did give us. Uh, I absolutely agree. And do, do you think this is Wong Jing at his best as a filmmaker? Because this movie feels more polished, more like a movie rather than a quick comedy with comedy with strung together pieces for two hours where people act like loons and there you have commercialism. Do, I mean, to me, it feels more polished than a lot of his other movies. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, you know, he, he does uh, seem to have a, a much stronger focus with what he's trying to do and what he's trying to tell. And I think he loses some of that. We'll talk about that when he gets to uh, the sequel, uh, the official sequel to this. But I, I you know, I, I am not ashamed to admit I love the Romancing Star series. Sure. You know, I love when, you know, he's got Chow Yun-Fat and other guys, you know, being lecherous and, and, and you know, doing short comedic set pieces. I think he has a strength there, too. I think that, unfortunately, now a lot of that is just uh, repetitive. He, he falls back on a lot of the same stuff now. Um, to to pump movies out, and it's not as fresh as when he was doing it in the eighties and nineties. And before we get into it more, is it fair to say that I mean, it it might be a, to- a thing I should know, but uh, just for the sake of reference, is it fair to say that gambling, card gambling, is a big big deal in Hong Kong and Asia? I mean, you you've lived there for a couple of years, you know, ten years or whatever, maybe longer. Or is it like is it cards that people go nuts about, or is it slots and horses as well, or what's going on? Well, uh, here in Hong Kong, the, um, they don't have 
casinos like Macau. So Macau is the big is is what they're pushing as the big Vegas, and um, you know they of course you've got the the Western casinos going in Sands and those guys, and and that sets the stage for a lot of movies of late. Like um, I'm thinking like uh, Poker King and uh, Vegas, some of the Vegas movies and and some of the others that have been set in Macau, um, shot at some of these newer newer casinos. Uh, you do still have a tradition, of course. Hong Kong is horse racing is very big. We have two big horse racing um, tracks, I guess you'd call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, one on Hong Kong Island, one in the New Territories, and you can always tell it's horse racing day because all the men are crowded into the jockey club, and all their kids are sitting outside. <laughs> kids are not allowed, you know, inside the jockey club, and wow. uh, they've all got their papers and their little radios on and everything. Uh, if you walk by lo- local, like parks and things, you'll see a lot of the retired um, older uncles and, and, and grandpas doing cards, but they're kind of, um, they're not regular cards. I, I'm not really sure what they are. They're like strips almost. Um, yeah, I think I've seen that in a, in a movie or two. And so the, um, that's quite common. You do have mahjong houses. So you mentioned Fat Choi Spirit a, a while ago where you, where you see um, you know some mahjong action inside an actual mahjong house. And you do have some official gambling dens, uh, although technically gambling is illegal. I don't know how they get away with it inside the gambling dens, but I, you know, they always like if you're gambling with your, you, you see like the, you know, the, the the four aunties gambling together and passing off money. Yep. That's technically not not legal, but you know, the, it's kind of like jaywalking. You know, the police aren't going to come to every public estate and bust people for it. This was then a wise commercial decisions decision to put on screen, and still to this day, I would gather. Uh, sure, I mean people people do love gambling. I mean it's it's apparent in a lot of the culture over here, and it's one of the reasons why Macau is doing so very much business these days, and you know why um, you've got so much development over there just in the past decade. We've set it up, and let's uh, get into it. I mean, it couldn't open. I mean, it's a rousing opening. It's what, it's what I'm trying to say. Like the f- very first images of Giant Fat with his slicked back hair, his trademark smile, if you will, walk, walking into the gambling room set in Japan, where he has his confrontation here, set to the lower low Sherman Chow score. But the, the point is we get so quickly into the character and the skills and Vadilio, maybe not Vadilio behind it, but he, that, that he has like non-supernatural skills and some, some supernatural skills, it seems, and in terms of how he follows and predicts the game. And even two minutes in, man, I think it really shows that Wong Jing has a great handle on how to make the games, to showcase his leading man, but how to make the games work cinematically, even as an outsider, because I have no idea what they're Blackjack, I can interpret, right? But I have no idea what the other games are about. And that, I'm, I'm firmly into the movie and the beats of the scene. And that means it isn't suited for the hardcore audience only, but a general audience. So, uh, do you think he, he's got a grasp on, like, inviting us all into, into a vision, if you will? Yeah, I think so. And, and the, the interesting thing on the rewatch for this for me, because I, I, I saw it in the, in the theater back when it aired. I got... I think a couple different versions. I think I might have the Laserdisc back in the States or VHS. I don't remember which one. Um, but then I've got the remastered uh, DVD as well. But for some reason in my head, I always rem- I, for some reason I thought the movie opened in Vegas, and it doesn't. It's in San Francisco. Yes. 
and he's gambling at a casino. I didn't even know San Francisco had casinos. And I guess it makes sense, you know, you're thinking God of Gamblers, Chinese Chinatown, that kind of a thing. But for some reason, I was sure that he was in Vegas gambling and he was getting kicked out of the casino at, at in Vegas. But no, it's it's a, I guess it's a smaller casino, San Francisco. Michael Chow makes a cameo as the casino manager. Yeah. Um, and and one of the one of the weaker points I think of of these series is that they tend to try and show some what was at the time current technology, and today it obviously dates it uh, seriously dates it. So there's this there's this computer readout of uh, that that prints out like a digital picture uh, that becomes sort of the iconic you know backshot of of the God of Gamblers because he doesn't have his picture taken. Um, but it's it's just such an old computer. <laughs> you know, it's like okay, you know, without without a couple of those things, I think the movie would hold up extremely well in terms of uh, you know time and place kind of thing. Because you know, aside from that, um, it's 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 not really easy to place a lot of things. I mean, other than maybe some of the cars people drive and some of the fashion, I would say. In a way, but 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 that's no one's fault, really. I mean, it's it's what it is. It's not that painful to watch or anything. But you're right. You you think of that photograph, and it kind of loads in the same way pictures loaded on old modems, like yeah, yeah, ten kilobyte pictures. You know, you waited, and ooh, there's a nose, there's a chin. <laughs> we also see, uh, I guess, his girlfriend uh, at the time, played by uh, Charlotte Chung, who makes multiple appearances throughout. Uh, <laughs> The, the various movies we're going to talk about in this series. Yeah, we'll 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 keep it spoiler free, but uh, that that's no surprise looking at Hong Kong cinema that uh, actors uh, turn up in sequels as uh, different uh, characters. But it's uh, quite a special uh, cameo she has in in the second movie as well. Uh, so yeah, he has this showdown with the uh, uh, this actor I, whose name escapes me, but um, yeah, Luke Chun is is the gentleman's name. Yeah. And uh, so they do. The first showdown is uh, with some bamboo mahjong tiles, where they're, I guess, trying to, you know, uh, get the best hand, and it becomes almost like a, you know, a little bit of a, a kung fu sparring battle. Yep. As they as they try and and make that, and then they go to the next game, which is a dice game, which I've played a couple times. It's a dice kind of drinking game, but I guess you can gamble on it as well. I've played with friends, you know, just out, you know, out for the evening having dinner or something as something to pass the time, not not gambling any money. But they bring out uh, Michiko uh, Nishiwaki from, you know, who's made appearances throughout Hong Kong soon as well. And, of course, she, you know, kind of disrobes and you see her Yakuza tattoo. And um, I love this clip. I I always show this clip um, because I teach a class on games and I show this clip to my students. when I, when I run this class and a lot of them haven't seen it. And so they, you know, when it gets to this part where, you know, she passes the cup over to Chow, she's, she's gotten, you know, the low hand of six ones, which I guess is the lowest, you know, that you can get for the hand. So she passes the cup to Chow or to Kochan and he says, Hmm, you know, this is good for a woman, but it's a little bit light for me. I need something heavier. And he calls for a heavier, you know, uh, uh, cup for rolling the dice. And my students, yes, my students all laugh because that cup is a very common cup used for drinking lemon tea at restaurants these days. And they all say it's oh, he's using a teacup to spin the dice. And I don't know if it was that common, uh, you know, back in the eighties. I don't know if that was something that you know people would commonly see as a you know just a cup people are going to drink out of. Um, so yeah, that's there's a little bit of a of, of, of modern 
trivia for you folks on, on how young people see the film today. It's on the point of that this is a great sequence and it has so many uh, my, my point being that it has so many cool shots here. Uh, the movie was co-lensed by Peter Pao and uh, David Chung. Uh, both are directors. Uh, D- David Chung is a better director of those two. Uh, David directed Royal Warriors and Magnificent Warriors, the Michelle Yeoh movies. And, you know, you, you got shots like inside the dice holder and uh, during the en- ending of the movie, there's some shots that follow the cards being slid across uh, the gambling table and what have you. So there's some... And, and, and the editing is actually, and the tension is absolutely exceptional here. The, and the, that's why everybody's working really well together, starting with Wong Jing from the top, and obviously the technical crew, and the actors. I mean, Chai Fat, this is 1989, and since 1986, and even a year or two before, he'd, be, he'd been working constantly, especially after his breakthrough. Yet there was rarely, even never, in my eyes, because I saw a lot of Chai Fat movies, at the time uh, when I started watching Hong Kong cinema, he rarely had an off day at that point. He was always, in some way, whether it was a dramatic, comedic, action role, superbly charismatic. And there were so many reference performances on in terms of what is Chiang Fat about, like what is the movie I should see to see the magic of Chiang Fat as action star, comedic star. And this is one of them, maybe one of the very, very best that you you'll become like an instant fan of Chiang Fat because as a comedian, he can be broad, but he's never grating and over the top. And, and here it's just uh, finely tuned. And I don't know how much of that comes from Wong Jing's focus and Chiang Fat working with Wong Jing. So certainly they, it comes from both because I think Chiang Fat comes with a lot of good instincts as an actor. And, uh, and Wong Jing... In this case, it's a very, very, very good director in this movie, but I think uh, it's a fine working relationship in that regard, you know? Yeah, the, I think, too, you, especially for this film, you get a broad range of Chow Yun-Fat and his ability to do different kinds of expression. So unlike a movie like uh, The Killer or Hard Boiled, where he's always, you know, the, the cold assassin or the, the hard-boiled cop, here he is... You know, at one time he is, of course, the cool god of gamblers, but then he also becomes something else. And so you get to see, you know, these different sides. You see the action side, you see the gambling side, you see the silly side. And I think it makes for a a very good variety, especially, again, for somebody who hasn't maybe had a lot of exposure um, to, to his films before. You know, as well as I do about Hong Kong movies, that they, they start out serious, especially from this time, whether it's a violent scene or not, that that dictates that seriousness. And you know in your heart that there's going to be a switch in moods. And depending on the filmmaker and the performance, that switch can be grating, it can be lazy, it can be desperate, or even in the case of this, fought out. So, you know, how do you think uh, Wong Jing like, transfers from some fairly serious stuff and into the lighter stuff when we meet Knife, for instance, and Joey Wong? Ah, uh, yeah, Andy and Joey. Um... Yeah, I think it, I'm in, it's 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 a good transition. I think for me, the the most difficult character for this first film is the character of Knife. And and I don't remember if I felt this way back in the day, but especially on this rewatch, and and I remember having watched it on video before. He's just such a jerk in the beginning. <laughs> oh yeah, he, he he wants the money. He wants to scam him out of his money. Yeah, he's carrying a a fairly large sum of money when he's uh, uh, when he falls off the road and what have you. So it's like, hey, hey, hey. There's money. Let's scam this fucker. But but it's like beyond that, just everything he does from the, the you know, 
oh, we're going to set up this railing so that the guy we don't like, you know, has a tumble. It's just he's just not a very nice guy. But of course, he does go through sort of this, you know, this transformation and and this transition um, and it does become more likable. Indeed. And uh, it's 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 it is indeed a challenge to set someone up as a bit of a bastard. And he's really not a big gangster. He's the boss of one. And that's his uh, friend, you know, so he can only boss around one. So and you never see him interact with any other gangsters in the movie, essentially. Well, well, Ching Foyon to an extent then and later uh, Umantat in his uh, small role. But really, he's not a boss of any kind, you know, but he, he acts like it. He sure acts like it. Uh, another piece of great casting is Charles Hyung, the, who's uh, Ko Chun's appointed bodyguard. Uh, and it's said they're both Vietnamese um, kind of quickly in the movie. So they they kind of connected that way. And casting Charles is just an exceptional choice because I, I haven't seen a lot of movies with him, but and he, he's not really a dedicated actor as such. Uh, but he's exceptional here because he's that superb force as a bodyguard you know he can fight he can shoot guns and he's got just a grace about him that works so well for charles in this movie so i think it's a it's a really an inspiring casting that might have been like conjured up in five minutes but it just worked in within like the vision of god of gamblers like that is the bodyguard of cartoons yeah yeah he's he, he does bring a, a nice stoicism uh to the role that i think makes it very iconic uh, we're going to talk a little bit about score, a little bit by, by Andy Lau. Uh, the theme, as we see Andy Lau uh, enter the frame uh, with his girlfriend and uh, and, his, and his friend, there it is an original score, but they recycle um, the theme from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid uh, here. Uh, you know, raindrops are falling on my head. Uh, they they do a reorchestration, if you will, of that B.J. Thomas song from uh, Butch Cassidy, which is fits the movie, but that that's like the sole score i could pick up on that is not original and they might have ripped it off and not paid uh like the label or bj thomas a penny for ripping it off like that but uh it, it sounds like it it's 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 close to it but i think they're pushing so that they weren't actually paying royalties because it's not the exact song a few notes off <laughs> yeah yeah considering that um you know there there's a and i think this is even in the love hong kong film review of it um, there's a strong association once um, uh, Kochan goes through a, a transformation with the movie Rain Man. And so you get that, you know, which was a year earlier, if I remember my dates correctly. And so you get the idea, you know, rain, raindrops, Rain Man, and, the, the, and it's kind of a light sort of fluffy theme for the character that he's become. And it, it, it's a nice opposition to the traditional, you know, that, that opening theme when, when he goes to gamble in Japan. That's um, become sort of the iconic theme for the God of Gamblers. And uh, on Andy Lau, jumping from score to Andy Lau, the thing with Andy in the 80s and even the 90s, uh, very dedicated actor. I mean, in terms of at least appearing in a lot of movies. But I, I think inside his heart, he was honing his craft, you know, working on so many movies. Uh, and I like Andy Lau a whole lot throughout his career. But there was a thing, an aspect to his characterizations in various 80s and 90s movies where he played this child punk in various movies. It's referred to as the Wadi character. Oh, from often. Moment of Romance. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Which was a great role, though, but I I'm not a great fan of when he took that child punk role to kind of 
broad, loud places, and here it's verging on that, but it manages to be one of, like his, if you want to see Andy Lau in a, as a tri-punk in a comedy, watch God of Gamblers. Here it works fairly. Some movies is just annoying, man. It, it's like, like an overcool that wasn't there, that wasn't naturally there, but that Andy Lau has now, he doesn't go back to this as much, I think, but he has now obviously become such a honed, a honed screen actor. Uh, so I wasn't a great fan of some performances, but Andy Lau still, in general, I was never like a non-fan of yeah, seeing so many movies of his uh, in the 80s and 90s. So in, in any general thoughts on Andy Lau? Because I, I'm sure you just uh, were exposed to him whether you knew it or not. Yeah, no, he was one of the first people I recognized uh, because he had, like you said, he was doing so much work during this period. Um, so many of the movies that we were getting in Florida that I saw were Andy Lau headliners. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I got to know him. I think he, him and Anita Moy were people that I got to know uh, pretty much right away. And they still remain my favorites of, of, of people today. And uh, to, for me, I mean, I know he does a lot of other work now. He does a lot of producing and, and everything else. He just he doesn't make enough movies. I want him to make <laughs> you know more movies than he does right now. In the heyday, uh, if we talk in general and maybe specifically Andy Lau and Anita Moy, did you ever get a sense of that they were hugely active in movies and hugely active as singers as well and recording and doing live shows or they had to kind of reduce that during some periods to make more movies and then go back to singing you know i couldn't tell you because where i was um i had access to movies because there were some chinese market shops in my area so once i started watching the films in the cinema then i was like all right I, i need to watch these again how can i watch these again you know i need repeat viewings and over time, I would find these Chinese markets that would rent VHSs at the time. And so I'd go in and, and they were surprised that, you know, who's this kid coming and wanting to, to rent these movies? And they're like, these, you know, some of these don't have English subtitles. I'm like, I don't care. You know, I've seen that one. I want to I watch it again, you know. And, and so over time, I got a good sense of what they were doing in terms of visual work. But I had no real knowledge of, you know, how, how much work they were doing for their CDs because I had no access to the to that kind of stuff back then. Um, I mean, you'd hear a lot of music done by people, Andy, Anita, uh, Leslie Chung, Jackie Chung, and others. Over time, you'd start to hear music and you'd recognize their voices as part of theme songs. And a lot of movies, it's almost like there would be a requisite music video of a song about two-thirds of the way in or something that would pop up. But um, it would only be later after I got here and I would start going back through, you know, old archives of music and looking at uh, albums and, re- and releases and things and seeing that, yeah, actually they did have a pretty uh, big release schedule. And I, I guess it's a kind of a traditional thing that still continues to today with the, the younger artists where um, they're usually pushing out at least one album a year, if not more, usually a Cantonese album and then later a Mandarin album. Uh, to try and cover all the bases. There's your like discipline uh, being attested, and uh, and if anything, back in the day, talking those four people, you know, Andy, Jackie, Anita Moy, um, and uh, various other people, they uh, they seem to adhere to like they they were able to focus on their acting craft and and as entertainers outside of movies as well, and eventually develop great screen acting, you know, over over these decades, you know. Ross Chen over at um, lovehkfilm.com, he always says that during this period, you've got 
you know, people like Andy and, and the others doing so much work. I mean, really uh, just doing an insane amount of work for a year. You know, sometimes, you know, uh, two-digit releases in, yeah. in a given year. <laughs> and when you think about it, okay, you're gonna, you might have 10 movies that are average or, or, or you know, eight that are average and, and two that are terrible, but then you'll have, you know, two more that are really good, you know. So within the spectrum of doing all that work, you're going to find things that, you know, you can do really well and that people are going to like you for. And, and then you're doing more of that. And uh, if you get a chance, you can experiment and, and, and try some different stuff and see what sticks. Mm, absolutely. And uh, that that's exactly right. I mean, uh, you, you have guys like Simon Yam who, I mean, I love Simon, but in a year like 89, 1991, not a lot of classics, but when the magic is there, boy, is it there. And uh, I always respected that working habit, to be honest. You know, a good, good example is um, you, you mentioned Mantat uh, makes an appearance, a cameo here as a loan shark, where he's kind of playing a, a traditional sort, sort of heavy triad character. But it's really like later, I think, with... Um, a moment of romance and then later with his partnership with Stephen Chow that he really gets known as sort of like the uh the the happy go lucky sidekick more so than the mean triad guy. Yeah. Um and he kind of rides that uh, that that kind of image along through the 90s and and then you know changes it up again later once we get into the 2000s with some other stuff that he does. I I wonder if you know you know did this is just silly but you remember the uh, impact that a better tomorrow had on the hong kong youth you know the image of giant fat the long coat and the uh and the match and what have you and they wore that long coat even in the most hu- on the most humid of days because the better tomorrow was so cool i wonder if people started eating chocolate like crazy after this movie yeah i don't know maybe it's you know if it would been in the u.s they would, they would have sold it at the concession stand when the movie was playing I also wonder if uh, Wong Jing, I don't think so anyway, but he, if he ever was like this 10, 20 takes kind of guy and if Chai Fat just overate on chocolate throughout this movie because he eats a lot of it. He does. Uh, uh, hopefully not. And hopefully it's not a thing where, uh, you know, because I guess the Hollywood standard is actors never really eat anything. They just appear to eat stuff. They put it in their mouth and there's like a spit bucket, which is kind of gross when you think about it. You know, you're eating a cheeseburger and you got to, do 50 takes and you got to spit it out 50 times but but i also believe in my heart that uh, wong jin kind of crammed out these scenes fairly quickly i mean he's not david fincher in that regard where like 50 takes 60 takes if he's i gonna... think i think if he's going to do 50 or 60 takes it's going to be uh when he's kind of focusing on the women when they're not uh, <laughs> you know fully clothed or maybe maybe his own scene like when he shows up at a brothel or something right right exactly Got to take this slowly now. In terms of Wong Jing and Chai, about their, your exposure to them over the years, was it the same thing, thing where you didn't really need to seek out Chai Fat and Wong Jing movies? They kind of just were there anyway. Like, Yeah, yeah. They, they, I mean, because there's a lot of stuff that got released that um, I wouldn't know about until much later because they weren't, you know, big headline stars and, and they weren't stuff that were coming out on our circuit you know, because uh, we were again, we were just getting one movie a week, so that's just fifty-two movies a year, which was small potatoes compared to what was get, actually getting produced and and released in Hong Kong at the time. If we could talk about unrealistic for a moment, um, one of the first stunts we get in this film, uh, I just want to point out, is an absolutely great full shot of a stunt fall from a second story onto the hood of the car and a roll off. And to to one knee, and it's an. I mean, this is they don't do this kind of stuff anymore. I mean, now it's all. I'm pretty sure the guy didn't have a wire of any kind. 
it looked like it looked like a full and I, I I rolled it back and I watched it a couple times. I don't think I mean they had like a weird wrapping on the car that was supposed to be indicative of the broken window. I think maybe there was some padding there somehow, but even so, that's a it was just a that's an amazing stunt. My hats off to that to that stunt team who did that one. And it's not like stunt heavy, like the main focus, like this is a Jack Chan movie, we're going to do stunts here now. It's a guy who's thrown out of a building and onto a car, but that's the kind of era we were in, that this is how we're going to do effective stunts on film, and it's going to hurt. And if you want your icebox in the afternoon, then, um, right, jump off. And hats off to Andy Lau as well, because um, there's a scene towards the latter half of the film where um, they're doing some... Uh, basically some some choreography on some scaffolding yes outside some bamboo scaffolding and a couple of the shots it's Andy Lau actually doing some of the jumps and so uh you know this was a time when he was not uh not beyond reproach it, it, it was either him or he has a really 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 good looking stunt <laughs> I mean I, I know the jump you're talking about and it it's it, it's a great jump because if even they're not high up on the air in, at that point, but if you slip no, and I'm, fall, and, and, and the angle of the shot. I mean, it's it's an upward shot, so I'm pretty sure that they had you know airbags and stuff, uh, pads all down below him. But even so, the fact that he would you know he was he was game for getting up there and doing it, and you know the director was like, oh, we can't let our lead you know our, our second lead guy do that because if he gets hurt, you know, insurance and all that kind of stuff that would probably you know, bring up a production to halt today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's always been as active as possible in various action movies, uh, Andy Lau, and uh, another like discipline I respected that uh, he, he wanted to get in there and uh, make sure it's really him and make an impact on screen that way. You're talking about Andy Lau, as we said, you know, he starts out as a very violent character. He wants to scam chocolate out of his money, and uh, he's hardly that father figure that he sort of becomes during his uh, time where he's mentally six, seven or eight years old, uh, or chocolate as he's now called. I don't know. I, I think Andy Lau partly is very inspired working with Chai Fat because the touches that Chai Fat brings, playing a kid, and it's not a highly exaggerated portrayal of a kid. He's, he's, I can't describe it other than the Chai Fat touch that he brings. It's just so spot on. Like, there's a scene or two, a moment or two, where, where Chocolates is trying to understand the scam that Knife wants him to pull off when they do gambling with Xing Fuyon. It's a very complex, like, you gotta do this, put these cards down, and then use the phone, and then call, like, the racetrack to place your bet. And he's obviously six or seven or eight years old at that point. There's so much to remember, and Chiron Ch- Ch- Fat looks so somewhat panicked, like, I, I can't remember all of this. <laughs> you know, I'm essentially a kid, and and that that brings out, I think, the best in Andy Lau as well, on his trajectory towards much more sympathetic and a bit of a caretaker, maybe not a father figure, but a caretaker of chocolate. I mean, he can't just leave him behind. He even takes him to the doctor later in the movie, like try to figure out what's wrong in the brain or what, what's like, um, why is it this way and is it reversible? That's the kind of theme here. Insert the notes in my review, like the child that touches. Uh, because that scene with Xing Fuyon, he's clearly understood part of the scam they're trying to pull off, but not a lot of it. So he starts betting too much, and he starts like revealing his cards out loud because he doesn't know. He thinks at one point when he looks at the card, and they're like the same suit or whatever, and he screams, "Ah, they're the same!" 
<laughs> and Shane Fayon is like, oh boy, we got an idiot on our hand. This is going to be so easy. And it's a great little uh, moment between the three, if you will. And uh, anyone would be inspired, I think, to bring their A game when Chai, in fact, is clearly bringing his uh, comedic A game here. And uh, it's not the first time he's going comedian in movies. He's a very, very funny guy on screen, whether he's hugely exaggerated or bringing it down as he does in this movie. I mean, this is not the diary of a big man manic here, but rather like a different role than that. But uh, still still so excellent. Uh, excellent. And even Wong Jing, I think, could be argued to be quite inspired working with such an on-the-point committed actor like Chai Fat is here. One of the things about this scene that always stuck out for me that I really liked was um, uh, Xing Foyan's character because he's he's kind of doing the traditional role he was always given as the as you know the triad gangster type character but at the end when they're when the guys are getting ready to leave you know and he still comes out and stops them and says oh by the way here's your winnings from your horse race uh you guys actually won i'm gonna take you know 30 percent as my commission but the rest is yours you know so he's got a little bit of honor to him when it comes to to some of that and i thought for me, that was just a nice touch because, you know, a lesser movie would have just totally forgotten about that and, and you know, not given that character, you know, anymore. Because at the at the end, you know, that's it. That's, you know, that's kind of the end of, of what that character's role was. He was such a reliable character actor, Shin Fuyon, whether it was a five-minute scene or a supporting role as a triad heavy, as a comedic somewhat triad or even in a different role completely. I mean, he was... Such a good actor, and uh, obviously passed away a few years ago now, but um, sorely missed and such a comfort factor in Hong Kong movies. Like you, to to see these character actors pop up for a few minutes, it's like, hey, I can't dislike this, no matter how I try. You know what I mean? It, it, it was always likable, especially with Xing Fuyong being that loud, uh, you know. I never heard his real voice, but he w- it was always dubbed with... Uh, well, I have heard his real voice and on one or two occasions. He was into Live and Die in Sim Chat Soi the Jackie Chung movie, that was Sing Sound, but they always got some bigger guy to dub Shin Fuyon, I think. But it works, you know, it's loud, loud. Typical triad, heavy loud, if you will. He brings in drama every now and again, this movie. At one point, Andy Lau's character knife is uh, frustrated with chocolate because uh, he's um, become defiant and um, the winnings haven't been coming in. So he leaves him in the streets. He abandons his child, essentially. And that's child fats, I think, finest and most heartfelt scene because the way he sits down in the busy Hong Kong streets and he looks so alone and he's freezing as well and he sits down and uh, you know tries to warm his arm someone have you and someone drops a penny or or, or coin in front of him it's it was one of my favorite scenes to rewatch when I first saw this movie on VHS uh, UK VHS because that was just like that is now my favorite actor Again, I mean, I've seen 10 fantastic moments with Chai Fat prior in other movies. Here's the 11th. He's, he's now my favorite actor for the 11th time, watching that scene where he's uh, all alone in the street. And it's also very downplayed. It's not like he's screaming, I'm alone, I'm alone. He's, he's cold. He can't talk to anyone, so he shouldn't rely on dialogue either. Yeah, I think a part of this also, um, that there's probably a loose kind of connection to uh, earlier film um, Why Me uh, which I think was uh, 
I think it was earlier, right? I think it's like 80. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's 86. He has a small role as a social worker in that one. You know, that, that's a very famous series from uh, Kent Chang where he's playing a, a mentally disabled person. And so I think that there's a, you know, there's a sense that we've seen scenes where, you know, a, a person who's, you know, not at their mental capacity, who's childlike, um, is alone, is abandoned. And, and this has kind of been played out in other movies. So I think there's an expectation uh, of, you know, what we're expecting to see. We're expecting to see him kind of break down, start crying and losing it. But instead, the focus stays on Andy Lau and and the emotions that he's going through. And I think here again, the direction kind of shows through that that's the right thing to do. And so then when that scene comes to its conclusion, it's 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 kind of a surprise. and It's kind of funny um, in, in the way that they handle it and what they do. And I got to point out here, too, that in this scene, some really good attention to detail because um, you'll notice there's a there's a there's a scene where Andy's leaving and he's going to get on a minibus. Yep. And he's got a big gold chain uh, around his his neck that he's wearing and he's got his like red jacket and all his his new finery from their winnings, right? Uh, he's got this big gold chain and then um, you know later uh, they, that chain is gone and there's a there's a brief scene right when he gets on the minibus where he takes the chain he lifts it and puts it underneath his black t-shirt that he's oh, wearing. Oh, yeah, you're right. You know, and, and it stays there. The The scene where he's, like, sitting on the bus, it's still there under his shirt. The scene where he gets off the bus and he's running back, you can see it, you know, kind of jingling around underneath his shirt as he's running. So, again, a lesser film would have shot that out of sequence, would have probably had all kinds of continuity errors. This film, they, they got it right. Indeed. I've always seen that moment but never, like, reacted to it in a conscious way. Because uh, I can clearly see it in front of me, but uh, very well, very well uh, noticed. Uh, and it, that also brings up the point that if anything, it largely feels like all scenes matter, that they do not stall the movie, except maybe because it's a rare thing in in any Hong Kong movie of this time and any Wong Jing movie that all scenes seem to matter. But if any any scene feels like I'm not sure structurally what it's doing until Charles Hyung enters, is the scene where they move into the love motel and <laughs> and uh, has it's funny but in a such a perfect movie you can see like okay okay here's where you could chop up some minutes but hey you wouldn't have the Wong Jin cameo if you will so you want to talk of what giant fat's chocolate gets up to when he encounters all the moaning and the shouting in that hotel Basically, I, I can imagine that Wong Jing said, hey, guys, this weekend I'm spending the weekend here. So if you want to shoot anything, you got to come to me. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be somewhat busy, but I've got some time. <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, what's his cameo, if you will, want to describe that? Um, you know, Chow Yun-Fat with his childlike curiosity keeps hearing these screams and he just basically opens the doors of, of different rooms in the Love Motel. And one of the doors he opens and there is our maestro, uh, Wong Jing, standing there. And, and, and he's armed with a, he's armed with a scissor at that point, so he's uh, threatening to chop it off. Uh, it was that's a it was a pretty good gag and 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 a pretty good setup. I laughed for sure. And Wang Jing, he he wasn't like a disruptive presence on the screen at all times. In some movies, it's pretty good. I love the movie The Big Score, where he played uh, he played a gambling expert, <laughs> and uh, it was uh, he started with Danny Lee in that movie. He played a cop, and Joey Wong was in it. Very like extremely darkly violent movie at one point switch to a lighter movie but uh, he, he was very good in uh, in the big score it's one of my favorite Wong Jing like performances on screen now uh, so it's a rare instance of filler uh, this uh, Wong Jing cameo on this love motel scene but it leads to you know without going through all the beats but it ultimately leads to Charles Young 
finding uh, after Chang Fat calls him on, on, on a business card that he found in his pocket. Uh, so Charles Young finds him in the Love Motel and tries to bring chocolate home. And he doesn't know chocolate is, has reverted to this childlike state and obviously he sees that he doesn't remember him. So it all leads up to, I think anyway, in this scene, or, or maybe, maybe not yet of a, car, a garage shootout, but... Uh, I think it goes to the mall and then from the mall... It gets into the garage. Yes, exactly. Because in between here, they've, they've gone to Maltat's character, ask for money, and, uh, and at one point, they're not planning to pay back the money, I assume. So Maltat's men are, are off the knife, but, uh, also now the enemies of Kuchun are on his trail. And, uh, it's a classic Hong Kong shootout scene in the garage. There's, it is, and it's one of the shortest classic Hong Kong shootouts when, Kuchun, without spoiling every beat in it, but he temporarily, firmly gets his at least action skills back. You see through the editing that flashes of his uh, memory as a gambler or or able to dish out violence. It comes back and it builds up, builds up, builds up to this crescendo, and boom, the expected giant fat two gun sequence. But it's the way it's built up. I've never seen any Hong Kong shootout build it up like this because you get so pumped you get so pumped you get so pumped and it happens and it's entirely massively satisfying as executed by action director Paul Kwan where Chai Fat just blasts away people when big squibs are rigged up on the stuntman and it's that heroic bloodshed feel that I obviously became a fan of first watching Hong Kong movies and it's just marvelously satisfying to this day you've not gone like grown like desensitized towards hong kong shootouts no the great one still gets you man like goosebumps and uh although i i I do want to nitpick at it a little bit before they get to the garage i think they're in the mall right and so there's a there there's a there's quite a few shootouts with again you know faceless thugs who are just running around with guns uh at the mall and then there's a scene where the woman is pushing a stroller uh she gets scared babies in the stroller not really a baby young child in the stroller the stroller starts heading down the escalator and then um of course um charles hung's character jumps backwards um riding down the escalator trying to reach the on his back trying to reach and and stabilize the baby great action piece you know very heroic except the one thing i noticed this time is that kid is a big kid he's not a baby (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you look, Oops. they've got the they've got the stroller kind of covered with like a plastic sheet or something. I think it's to hide his body because when they do the close up of that kid's head, that is a huge kid, <laughs> and uh, I think he's a little bit too old for for being in the stroller. But we do see that we do see pretty big kids still being pushed around in strollers here. But um, regardless, I mean, I, I'm I'm sure that for some of those shots, they didn't want to actually put a real baby. Um, in there so they got a kid who you know you know hold his own if the things things got a little bit shaky on on a couple of those shots but yeah if you take a good good close look at that kid's head it's huge <laughs> he's a big kid but yeah it's one of the shortest hong kong movie shootouts of this kind and as the rank it's so high it's so satisfying you don't need a 45 minute hard boy landing to make it classic you need a one minute giant fat just blasting away two people Two people, well, a couple of people, three or four, in, in such a satisfying way where the squibs, squibs are big, man, and they they blow up like you read about in these stuntmen uh, under under money, and and it's and and it's set to the God of Gamblers score to bring that back, you know, for that massive like outburst, which is absolutely 
perfect to do. And 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 your point here too, I think, is with regard to the, this moment in the film is is very organically built to, and then of course we move beyond it to get to the final, you know, sort of sort of big climax uh, of the film. And I'm when we're going to come back and talk about the second film. This is going to be one of my biggest points of contention where they absolutely drop the ball with this. Because unlike this film, that film does not have that, it, that it's got way too much repetition. And, and I think that, yeah, here we just, you know, it, it feels natural. It feels the right place. It's got the right timing. It doesn't run on too long. And it's got good pacing. And the, the action that we're shown is very good. Now, another nitpick I'll have is that a couple characters get kind of shot. And it's like, oh, okay, no big deal. And this is also a point that I want to come back to and pick at with the second movie. Later. Sure, sure. <laughs> Let's uh, just briefly talk about the gambling finale because this doesn't end with a shootout. It ends at the gambling table with Kochun versus uh, like the devil of gamblers. It's He's translated as, in the second movie at least, uh, uh, the, the old gentleman that he's gambling against. And this it continues to be very understandable. Like, the game is not very complex, the card game. I mean, uh, if you have, like, multiple aces or multiple kings, you know, you're in a good place and what have you. But still, I am a complete idiot when it comes to these things and still was on board because it it's supposed to... Wong Jing is supposed to translate the beats of the game if Ko Chun is in trouble or if he's, you know, has good cards or not. You know, that's his job here. Uh, not not to get lost in the game, but that's his job to translate if it's going well or if it's not going well. And that he does exceptionally as well. And he deserves props because shooting at a table must be incredibly boring. But through the shots and the direction and the editing and the music and certainly the performance and the reactions that he shoots from Andy Lau and, and the audience members, it brings it home, you know what I mean? That This is stuff that's created in editing, but must be steered by someone with, with vision during shooting. And that is what Wong Jing is doing really, really exceptionally well. So um, that's my kind of cap on it all, I suppose, so for my for my views. But uh, what do you want to say in general about the, the finale, the gambling finale? Yeah, he kind of uh, brings it to a crescendo. There's a couple of things that are thrown in, I think, to sort of escalate the overall tension, um, including uh, the, the fate of Charlotte Chung's character, um, his partner uh, named Ayi, uh, played by um, uh, Long Fong, and a uh, little bit of necrophilia thrown in for you know good measure. <laughs> it's <laughs> the most always, extreme you know. extreme element of the film, yeah. But I'm I'm, I'm not surprised to see it. But uh, they are. But you know we do we 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 are introduced to the supposed you know big heavy of the film. This uh, the guy I guess I think he's from Singapore. They say named Chen Kam Singh, and we will see him again. Um, he he's brought up in a couple of the other films. And and why we see him again is is a question that I always have based on the events that happen at the end of this film. Because uh, needless to say, things a lot of the conventions we are given, you know, the, the idea of gambling on the sea established in this film, uh, the slow mo walk in again with the music, which is par- parodied in another movie we'll uh, cover uh, later in this series, and the 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 reverse cheat or the sort of the long con that that we're given to to expect um, is is you know, also established here. And I still think it's, you know, all these elements are done the best here. I mean, we'll see different variations of these throughout the series. 
Um, but I still think that they this was the one where they nailed it and kind of came close in some instances, but never surpassed. It all this movie. I mean, they weren't planning extensively. Ma- they haven't mapped out war uh, the entire series uh, while shooting this one. I'm sure, but they set up a Las Vegas sequel, but that never happened until, I suppose, Wong Jing made his. Andy Lau starrer um, con man movies because didn't they do a con man in Vegas? Con man in Vegas, yeah, yeah, and and I, I assume they did go to Vegas. Vegas is not this alternate name for Macau in the case of this movie. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, it's been so long. I have to rewatch that one. I'm they made it. They may have. Uh, I don't know if they actually shot in Vegas or they just had sets standing in for Vegas. Right. Do you remember that series at all? I only watched the first, and I wasn't too. I impressed. just remember like uh, Nick Chung. Uh, dressing up as Ronaldo, a soccer star at the time, I guess. I don't know know much about soccer, but it was supposed to be a gag. <laughs> That's the verdict, people. It was supposed <laughs> to be a gag. So, uh, I, I remember that part of it. Yeah, they, they made like three or four of those, but I, I was never truly impressed off the con man. And I, I watched. I remember liking the first one, and then they did uh, con man and. Tokyo and then Conman in Vegas. I'm not sure which one came next. And thinking both of them were not quite as as good. All right. Yeah, I never had any uh, urge to rewatch them. And I watched the first one knowing that Nick Chung was at that time. And it's amazing what happens, what has happened since that he was groomed as we got a new comedy star here, people. And looking at that, going where? <laughs> <laughs> you know, is, is he behind Nick? <laughs> but that, that, that's the wonderful thing about Nick is that. That's his past persona that they tried to mold him into. Now he's been, through his own choices, molded into a fantastic actor. And I'm sure he does comedies every now and again, but he's not uh, this uh, Wong Jing puppet, if you will. No, he does. I think he, given the right material, um, he can be extremely funny. Uh, the film he did last year with Sammy Chang, I thought, uh, where he's kind of. He's a straight man, but he's delivering these deadpan lines, which I think. And he's got these reactions which are are just very very funny at times um, not a great movie on the whole but i think his performance comedically w- worked well for me I, I would love to watch a comedy like after so, so much acclaim and after so much uh, skill gained over the years to go back to um, a comedy role broad or not to see how it fits uh, an award-winning actor uh, th- that that is a very alluring idea but hey we'll uh, maybe do that on a dynasty report in the future but Unless you have any notes, Paul, I'll do the availability. But uh, yeah, the floor is yours if you, if you want to share any random moments. I just want one, uh, one thing to kind of highlight here. Um, we're given the hint of Ko Chun's ability to manipulate cards that slightly borders on the supernatural. Um, and I think that kind of sets the, the groundwork for a film we'll talk about later, uh, which is the introduction of Stephen Chow uh, in All Four, The Winner. Uh, so that's that's uh, that, that you'll hear of in a subsequent episode. But uh, for now, uh, the availability just shortly again. Uh, the remastered DVD by May are uh, the uncut, the full uncut one. That also is available as a was available as a two DVD set with the sequel, which is uh, what I own. Uh, those uh, a grand collection of God of Gamblers, and that May are did they even did like a grand collection of Romancing Star, you know? So. Uh, which is always an amusing like combination, uh, but uh, hey, it, it's a good uh, way to get the price down and getting two movies in one. But that single disc DVD edition and the two DVD set 
is seemingly out of print or possibly just temporarily out of stock. It's uh, that's how it's listed at Yes Asia, but uh, it is the release to go for in terms of picture quality. And again, as mentioned, it is also fully uncut as opposed to earlier Hong Kong home video versions missing 12 minutes or so. And I think uh, this movie plays very, very well at the 125 minute uh, running time that it has in its uncut version. Definitely, I just want to say a second for the remastered version because it looks gorgeous. Um, Especially if you compare it with the non-remastered version of part two, which looks terrible. So uh, let's uh, take a break and return, <laughs> return by talking God of Gamblers return from 1994. Cochun uh, returns in the first true sequel uh, featuring Chai Fat's uh, character. Because in between he's, he's sort of been featured, but in the various spin-offs, but uh, not him. But uh, that, that is a story for another podcast. So uh, God of Gamblers return after the break. Welcome back, and now it's time to review God of Gamblers Return from 1994 and plot from the Love HK film review of the film. Kochun is now living in France with his pregnant wife, played by Chala Chung, playing a different wife. And we'll talk about that. However, the usual evil bad guys show up, led by actor Wu Xingguo, and they challenge Kochun by killing his wife and leaving her unborn fetus in a jar. And that's just in the first 10 minutes. Naturally, Ko seeks revenge, but only after a year has passed. While vacationing in Taiwan, he hooks up with Kung Fu Kid, a Kung Fu Kid played by uh, Shi Miao, uh, from My Father is a Hero, among other things, uh, movies, uh, after his dad, played by Blackie Ko, bites, bites it. Then more stars hop on board, including Tony Lunga Fai, Wu Qin Lian, and Ching Miao as a Taiwanese femme fatale. They band together to take down Wu Xing Guo's character, that is called actually Chan Siu Chie. Fairly involving plot, a lot of characters, uh, two hours again, and uh, I'll do my quick opinion first this time. The sequel is quite a tedious and even boring one, save for a good gambling finale and a tremendously inappropriate opening and good flow of over-the-top action and silliness for the last third or so. It is hard to top the first one, yes, but this doesn't click as well at all. I think the first hour in particular is uh, literally quite bad, but uh, it picks up during the second hour decently, especially when they introduce more of the cost. You, you've hinted at your um, opinion of God of Gamblers Return, but in short, what do you want to say about it uh, despite here? Okay, so there's two God of Gamblers 2. One is with the Roman numeral 2, Roman Roman numeral two, and the one is the number two, which is this one, and that's what I think of it. It's number two. <laughs> there you go. You know, it it makes sense that it would, you know, return. But uh, I, I guess the other movies kept uh, everyone everyone busy, especially Wong Jing. That it took five years for this to be conceived, I suppose, and uh, to find a slot maybe for Chang Fat. But you know, they're both successful local celebrities, Chang Fat and Wong Jing. The brand is strong. Got gamblers. Gambling itself is strong, and their draws, if you will, and more stars had emerged, and even stars that had come into their own by 1994. So 
it makes sense that it happened and the audience were not sick of it. It was quite a successful movie, 50 million plus uh, Hong Kong dollars at uh, the box office. But uh, it kind of shows that, at least for me, the gambling run, if you will, had seen better days, if you will. Uh, the Stephen Chow ones are, to my in my eyes, uh, extremely enjoyable. Quite different beasts, obviously, but uh, this one feels tired. I, it, it's almost like it's trying to go through the motions, and it's trying to, uh, in some ways, top what's come before it. I mean, when you get when you get a series that constantly builds on ideas from previous films, at a certain point, you've kind of got nowhere left to go. And so what we get is we get a repetition of a lot of ideas that show up in other films. We get repetition of stuff within this film that makes it much longer than, than necessary. And then they get some stuff that, that's just so over the top, it makes you kind of go, really? I mean, there, there's nowhere left for them to go. We're, nowhere left for them to go. So you got to kind of think that's maybe the only option they could come up with. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like to me that Wong Jing was in category free mode. He he produced a lot of these great category free movies, so maybe it wasn't that gruesome mode. Let's make it gruesome, and boy, does he ever make the opening gruesome with, obviously, uh, Charla Chung uh, biting the dust early by uh, off screen having her uh, the fetus of the unborn kid cut out and placed in a jar because Wu Xing Guo is evil that way. He wants to gamble with him, so that's what you get for not gambling. <laughs> it's, I mean, I, I enjoy it on a shameless level. That okay, this movie's gonna be pretty hardcore, but but it's not really like the through line of the movie that unwarranted brutality, that like borders on actual like category free almost. But uh, they they do this thing that I I think is sometimes common in in uh, m- movies where the hero is iconically powerful, right? I mean, they still do this today. You look at the movie like. Uh, Iron Man 3, and it's the same kind of thing. And the first God of Gamblers, it was the same kind of thing. You've got this this iconically powerful character of Ko Chun, so you have to take away his power somehow, right, through the course of the movie, and then he gets it back, and then he comes back to full strength, and he, you know, brings the hammer down on the villain. While it works in the first movie, what they do to get him there in this movie, I just think is so over the top and so extreme and so doesn't fit uh, here that it just kind of takes it takes me aback right away, especially after having watched these films pretty much almost back to back on two consecutive days. It just seems like you know such a such a sudden jump. And uh, I haven't gone back and watched the others yet because um, because we're doing these kind of out of sequence. So I wanted to just go right from one to the other um, without a lot of the middle ground. And and I mean we get some interesting stuff right at the start. We have um, an actual mention. For example, of Knife and Sing, the, the Stephen Chow character who we'll get to, by the Ko Chun character. So there's a recognition of the God of Gamblers 2 film and by extension the All for the Winner film as part of the canon here, right? So that, that wasn't just, you know, the filmmakers playing with things uh, in those films, but, 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 you know, this is all part of the same universe, part of the same world. And so I love that. It's very comic book-esque, right? It's you know, expansion of this universe, which is great. You 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 can also imagine that Wong Jing possibly wanted Andy Lau back, but there's plenty of reasons you can come up with yourself why it didn't happen, and busy being one of those reasons. We do get the return of uh, another uh, character uh, who makes multiple appearances as well with uh, Chan Kam Singh. 
Um, and Charlotte Chung, as you said, is back, but not as who she was. But you know, she's a she's a she was a popular go to girl. Um, you know, during this period, and uh, I think uh, <laughs> I, I love the dialogue that uh, the character of Chung Gam seeing uh, the older gentleman that uh, uh, Chow. Uh, Gamble against in the first movie. The actor is uh, Pao Hong Lam. Uh, he said that Ko Chun usually marries someone who looks like his ex girlfriend. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wong Jin, God, on the nose, like you're read about. Okay. Uh, I, I, you got me there. I thought that was funny. You, they didn't need to mention it because it's such a common thing in Hong Kong movies that if they possibly died in the first movie or were a villain in the first movie, they can come back as someone, of, uh, someone else, uh, maybe a good guy. You know, or good woman. <laughs> uh, it's fine. You know, they, they, they don't uh, react towards this. It's even that in the Young and Dangerous universe, I remember we discussing this, uh, we're discussing this long time ago on Podcast No Fire that, uh, Shu uh, or someone uh, dies early in the series and then comes back as a different character and no one bats an eyelid really. And I, I guess that's in part, you know, because people, it, it is a very small kind of stable when you think of the Hong Kong you know, a core group of actors and actresses that people want to go out and see. And so the audience is okay with it. I, I'm okay with it. What I'm not okay with is the fact that they decide, all right, well, we've just done this terribly, insanely tragic thing by this man who's not a gambler, but he's basically a, a walking psychopath. Why anybody would follow him, I have no idea. And so now we're going to rein in the rage of Chow Yun-Fat by his having his wife say, Promise me you're not going to gamble and 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 re- be re- you know tell people you're the god of gamblers for one year. I'm like, what? No, the the baby's in a jar over there. <laughs> you know, that's his reaction. That's his reaction to like why it's it's a kind of contrived, if you will, uh, setup and uh, the rage and the tragedy. You don't feel that throughout the movie, even and during that death scene. Charifat is a great actor, but he's not that good when given little to work with because when he's crying by her side and she's dying slowly and the fetus is over there i i can't say i felt much of anything i was just like well that's pretty brutal the impetus for doing this aside from hamstringing the coach on character is to as you said try and point out how intensely and and over the top evil uh the uh, chow su che character is by um by the actor uh wu sing guo right Uh, to, to to show that he's Far worse than you know the the old man was you know Chan Kam Singh uh, ever was uh, or any of the other villains to date that you know have been in the spinoff movies. This is the worst one yet. And oh, what is Ko Chun going to do? You know, how is he going to deal with this uh, absolutely you know over the top evil bad guy? And I think that that that's unfortunate that they couldn't have um, just create created and crafted a more clever enemy for for uh the character rather than saying okay we're just going to go with over the top you know uh backstreet alley evil yeah he's a great actor too and i, I um, temptation of a monk green snake you will see him as well i think uh, wishing quo uh, one of the films you guys talked about uh not too long ago rock and roll cop he was in that oh movie. yeah he played the uh, mainland uh cop in that one that's right that's right great actor very really taken but not he's not given a lot here but admittedly looks good with the crew cut and he's got the glare if you will but there's not much uh, added uh, that is truly memorable if you will and he doesn't do that whole if they had a scene where he likes cutting the fetus like you read about that that would have been like wow 
they went there and uh, he got he, they got him to perform that. But hey, it would have been a category three movie if so. And uh, this is indeed a more commercial movie. So and and even like the, the character is so evil that he throws and so villain that he he's shown in his first scene stroking a white cat like villains do. But but then the cat scratches him and he throws out the cat out the window. Fake cat, obviously. No animal were, animals were harmed in the case of that scene, but. Uh, but still on the leash. Yeah, exactly. Still, so bump, still on the leash. Bump, when it goes out the bump, bump against the car. So there you go. It's 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 fun commercial stuff to shock, I guess, but it's not very thought out. Um, and it's also the kind of movie, and I partly enjoys the enjoy this, especially later on in the action department. It's the kind of movie where no realistic level is adhered to because we have characters that can throw playing cards, but use them as deadly throwing cards. You know, they can, uh, you know impale those cards in the face of other characters and they die that way it happens twice in the movie so it, it it's that kind of universe too it's it's uh, very fantastical but it's strange to me for overall the action is kind of weak i think for all its graphic turns that we see in this movie it's the actual gunplay it seems oddly devoid of blood and squib work and it's not overly thrilling, to be honest, uh, if I'm being honest. It feels more forced as well. Yeah, Coach Yun is back shooting guns with, with Charles, uh, Charles Hung, uh, Hung. I, no, there was no thrill there for me, you know, the opening shootout. And it's, it's because they start with one. And this is my, this is the point we were talking about with the first film, right? The first film builds to this sort of nice organic crescendo. But this one starts with this. And you've got, you know, Coach Yun like blasting five guys out of room windows at the same time. And then they go to another one, yet again, later in the film. So it becomes very, very repetitive. It, it's like, all right, well, we've, 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 we've had a shootout already. Why are we having another one? And there's, you know, okay, they throw in a couple comedic elements here and there, but there's really nothing adding to it. That's just another shootout. Um, and so I think that, you know, here too is the problem. They start with a shootout and then they build to a shootout and there's just... You know, it's it, it's no no sense of raising the stakes at all. It's just uh, you know repetitive. But if you turn it around, though, despite its criticism, it and that it isn't very driven as a genre movie, uh, but rather very commercial and unfocused. It offers up like fairly good fun overall. Like it's not terribly boring to watch overall, especially once you get past the hour point. And I guess that's me. In a way, 80s and 90s Hong Kong movies, most of them, at least prior to maybe 95, most of them are fairly easy to sit through, even though you can rip them apart. Like There's a comfort viewing factor, and certainly Wong Jing has assembled a lot of appealing actors here, and somewhat appealing elements. So it's not terribly boring to get through for me once you get like Ching Miao and... Elvis Choi and Tony Langafai and especially Wu Chen Lian later in the movie. That's from my personal viewpoint. Do you think it's uh, is it easy to sit through or do we have issues uh, with the pacing? It, it's almost like there are certain set pieces that come up that um, give us a reprieve. And it's like, okay, this is happening now. This is funny. This is cute. You know, I like the people on screen right now. And then, oh, now we've got a chase. And then, okay, now back to doing some cutesy stuff and then uh, back to the chase. It, it never feels like it comes to a, a true fruition, you know. Um, you get like um, Ken Lo comes in as a thug, right? Ken Lo is, uh, for people who may not know, is a sometimes cameo actor, former bodyguard of Jackie Chan, 
Um, here he's got hair like Ikan Cheng, which I almost didn't recognize. <laughs> because <laughs> today, right. he still shows up in movies today, but he's like completely bald now. He's got hair like Tony Lundgaffe in this movie too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, he, he kind of shows up here and, and you know, he's, he's going to do a double cross. But then it's like guys with scuba gear. And I feel like I'm watching a James Bond movie. And it's like, what, what, what's going on? You know, yeah, it's a siege on the ship of Blackie Coe's uh, character. So, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're going through the, the, the fight on the ship and the ship's burn or before the ship starts burning. Like one of the thugs runs up and he lights a lighter. And I don't know, maybe I, I don't know enough about the physics. Okay. But he's got like a, you know, plastic Bic lighter and I don't smoke, but I've used, you know, plastic Bic lighters to light stuff in the past, fireworks and, and, and incense and whatnot. They're throwing the Bic lighter in a microwave to cause an explosion. But the guy like holds it in front of the camera and lights it first. But then, you know, lets it go and, and, it, and it goes out. Then he throws it in. And I'm thinking, well, why did he light it first? Because the gas would have been burnt up with the flame, right? And then it's closed, so there's no more gas coming out. So, I mean, why not just throw it in and turn on the microwave and let it blow up anyway, right? I don't know. I, it's it just, it just it, it was an odd scene. It's like, all right, well, we need to establish that this is fire, right? <laughs> and fire burn, fire bad. So light it first and then throw it in, right? And then, and then the tech crew can actually blow up the boat. And that, that's yeah. our excuse, if you will. So it, it's competent, I suppose. But like even, you know, giant fat sweating a, a harpoon out of the air is not thrilling or impactful as this. He, he needs to hide his, even his competent powers on that level, you know, to try to keep matters on the down low. But they're not hitting that like ooh factor like God of Gamblers easily did, even though it wasn't flooded with action or anything. But uh, it's it's clearly like stumbling and trying and trying and trying, and it's not quite hitting it. Far far from hitting it. And uh, then they introduce uh, Elvis Choi, the mainland police. They end up on the mainland on, on mainland shores and get arrested that way. Chiang Fat and uh, Xie Miao. Uh, I, I was wondering, did this movie? It is dubbed, it's post-dubbed, but it has what seems like realistic usage of Mandarin and Cantonese. Blackie Ko's character speaks at least partly Mandarin because he's a Taiwanese gangster. Blackie Ko was Taiwanese too. So so they mix here, but when they get to the mainland police station, all of a sudden Elvis Choi's character is speaking Cantonese. And is that realistic at all for a mainland setting, or do you think like for comedy purposes it's better to just stick to Cantonese when they reach the wacky police station shenanigans i I think it's probably just you know they want to stick with cantonese for the comedy and and for elvis Choi's sake you know you can go i you know go to north of hong kong into uh, guangdong and find if you get out of shenzhen you'll find a lot of cantonese speakers still so if they're in that southern you know guangdong region you know i think it's it's acceptable to think that they're going to be speaking you know cantonese over Mandarin in, in, in some situations. Uh, officially, of course, they'd be required to use Mandarin most of the time. But on my trip, last trip to Guangdong, I, you know, I can't get around in Shenzhen by myself because I can't read simplified characters and I don't speak Putonghua worth a darn. But when I was in Guangdong, I had no problem getting around and speaking Cantonese and talking to people. So I, I think that that part of it, if they're, you know, they, they didn't really establish a location from what I can remember as to exactly where they were in in the mainland. I mean, for, because even for a post-dub movie, sometimes even if they feature tons of Western characters, you know, in this case, French characters every now and again, they just dub the whole thing in Cantonese anyway. But here it's a, it's attention to detail even 
though it's a post-dub thing. And here's a point that I do need to give credit to this movie and to the actors, because um, it seems like Chow Yun-Fat, uh, M. Sin Lin, Wu Chin Lin, uh, and um, Tony Leung did their dubbing in post. So the whole movie sounded like post-dubbing, and I think Elvis Soy as well, uh, and, and uh, Lock Ha-Yung and some of the others. But it sounds like they pulled them all in to post-dubbing, and they all did their lines in post-dubbing, uh, which we don't get in the original film. Uh, for example, Andy's not, that's not Andy's voice in 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 part one and so you know that's a that's a point here where i think that this film has a little bit of superiority because when it comes to sound i hate post-dubbing but if you're going to do post-dubbing at least give me the actor's actual voice indeed and uh, speaking of sound they even went to the lengths of uh because th- this was not super common at the time it started to become a little bit more com- common but this movie actually had a dolby's round soundtrack for cinemas which it happened every now and again. Bride with White Hair is Dolby. This came out the same year, but certain big movies like Your Drunken Master 2 that year, that was, that was regular old mono and uh, all of that. So it was fun when they tried to um, broaden the sound, uh, the sound a little bit more and make it a bit more professional. Uh, sync sound was fairly common in 1994, so uh, sort of semi-surprised they didn't go for that, but uh, it's, it's a decision at some point you know uh that they make and they stick with uh even though they can record sound they just go with the easier suggestions sometimes you know and uh and that's absolutely fun you mentioned Wu Qian Lian one of my favorite actresses Jacqueline Wu saving grace of this film <laughs> oh yeah she any film really she can be in a movie and pick up that movie if it is on its dying legs and carry it through she always had a knack for and I'm sure she still does if uh, she appears in movies and on tv she also had a knack for having great chemistry with her leading man. Andy Lau was probably her most frequent leading man. Moment of Romance 1 and 3, The Adventurers, which was not that great of a movie. But uh, even, you know, with Chow, in fact, Treasure Hunt, I think, was the year before this year. And they're wonderful together. And as soon as they started bringing in them two, and Tony Lankafai, to an extent, who's uh, very comedic in this movie, almost a Stephen Chow-esque broad character, almost. But as soon as she enters the movie, the movie picks up where, because she is good, and I have, like, this huge, you know, I have a huge fan of hers, and she can never do wrong, you know. Even small movies, like Beginner's Luck, the Lao Ching Wan gambling uh, movie, or betting movie, rather, more of a betting movie that came out later. Awesome, because she is always there, even though the role is not this hugely written deep profound role but she's always makes it watchable and she was also a terrific bold actress with her choices you know dark roles like beyond hypothermia the role in in intruder the little scene uh, johnny toe produced uh, milky way movie the category three movie so such huge admiration for her choices and the way she conducts herself on screen yeah i i'm a i'm a big fan and you know for my money give me uh, a whole lot more of her and less of anybody else, and, and I'm happy. I mean, I know that during the time, of course, um, Charlotte Chung and, and Ching Mei Ching Mei were sort of seen as the Jing girls, you know, the, the the Jing beauties. But I think she's just a knockout, and I've always, you know, had a had a torch for her, and I love her in any movie she's in, and particularly when she does. I mean, she's she's very great dramatic actress. And, I, I, you know, she's got super props. I mean, you look at a moment of romance and what she does there, it's great. But I love her in the comedies she does. Um, and, uh, you know, things like, um, you know, the uh, dream lover where she actually replaces 
Charlotte Chung. I mean, if you've seen, if you don't, if you don't know, there's there are two movies released within a month of each other that are exactly the same movie with a different yes. cast. Romantic Dream is the other one. Romantic Dream and Dream <laughs> Lover. And if you want to see the same movie just with two different lead actors and actresses and, and supporting cast, get these movies because they are a riot. They're both fun. I like them both, but the one with uh, Wu Chinlin is superior just because she's in the lead for me. Both produced by Charlotte Chung, funnily enough. It's like her producing stint was two exact movies. I've never been able to find out, I've never read in any book or anything, there must be a story behind that somewhere as to what happened. I, you know, Maybe one production didn't go the way she wanted or, or something, and, and you know, there's got to be a story there. We're making there really it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I agree. Dream Lover versus Romantic Dream uh, is, uh, is the superior one. And uh, she's very funny in this one, Wu Qianlian. Uh, Chai Fat wants to make a phone call, and uh, she starts just a mess with him, I suppose. She fakes that he's reached a phone sex line, and she just holds her nose like this. Hello. (laughs) Want to know my measurements? And he's not having any of it, but it's a wonderful piece of uh, her just being completely bonkers and silly and uh, also feisty, uh, as as the character is, um, you know, she has an attitude about her. She seems a bit tomboyish, but... uh, just, just perfect. And speaking of Tony Longafai and his uh, great '90s period of, um, he had this uh, long mane of hair in a good four or five movies between '93 and '95. Beautiful hair, like that is perfect. That's a man's hair right there. And I love Tony's transition in a way. He's he grew from kind of like scrawny, thin, geeky, but good actor in the '80s into more of a assured both comedic and serious leading man and even like brute and heavy as the 90s went on so that that, that transition is very appealing watching Tony Langafai and uh, even today he, he can be silly uh, amidst his serious roles I mean he did that uh, Herman Yao movie Papa Loves You amidst election I think so maybe he had a lecture yeah. one day and Papa Loves You one day and he runs around being quite flamboyant and geeky. Works perfectly fine. He's such an amazing actor. But uh, I don't know. Did, did did you ever think of that transition that he made? That uh, if that was appealing or not from from eighties to nineties, for instance. You know, he of course he's well renowned for you know doing movies like The Lover, and and very serious roles. But I love him for when he's just being super silly. You know, he can he can do crazy. He can do extreme, and he still is very well at carrying that off today. Um, like election and 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 um, you know some of the other more dramatic roles, but I like it when he's got his shirt off and he's being silly. You know, boys are easy, and you know that kind of you know just 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 having fun with it. Um, that's that's the Tony Long that I that I kind of like to see, um, and I think he does it very very well. He does comedy uh, and humor uh, very very well, and that's that's what I enjoy much more so than his dramatic stuff. Not, not to take any anything away from that, but but speaking of that, there I mean. Talking about all the work he's doing during this period, there's a great shot when they actually make it to Taiwan or, or <laughs> southern Taiwan. I know what you're and, and he basically, they're standing in this movie district behind, and behind him is all these movie billboards. And of course, one of the billboards is another one of his movies with uh, Anita Yun, um, He and She. Yep. And it's just, you know, it's like, you know, okay, they're just going to do the shot. And there oh, it is. is. Uh, to, li- to Live and Die in uh, Tsim Shot Soy is up there, too. Oh, yeah, that's right. And you've seen that, too. And uh, he's a woman, she's a man poster I saw there. So you had, like, uh, you know, big movies. And it shows that they shot it around that time, too. Around 94, maybe 93, 94. 
because those I, they don't they didn't plant that stuff. Obviously, it, it was the actual strict. The point is that the better interplay between characters happens when Wu Qianlian and Tony Leung enters. Uh, I mean, it's structurally in a way echoing meeting, you know, dagger and in a uh, knife rather from the from the first movie and uh, a girl. It's not his girlfriend in this movie; it's uh, their brother and sister, but. It's not a desperate little element to make it seem like the first movie, though, because uh, now we have a couple of actors that work fairly well together, and it looks like they have fun. The, the sparks fly a little bit in, more in some areas, while other parts of the movie, they, they're just not there. Uh, the, the, having Chaif out there is, for once... I said he never phoned it in, but for once, this is a Chaif out movie for a good chunk that is fairly tedious. There, There is a... I, I think part of it is for me. There's a there's some repetition of elements. So, for example, we do have Elvis Choi, who's great, but he is yet once again a mainland cop chasing fugitives. You know that 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 iconic character established in movies like Long, Long Arm of the Law, um, two and three. And there's that aspect. We there's a there's a scene that's very indicative of uh, Home Alone. You know where they've got like these moving cutouts to try and distract people and and everything. And and so. He's borrowing ideas, and again, he did this with the first film, as we said, you know, uh, some thematic moments we've seen elsewhere, you know, homage maybe to Rain Man and stuff like that. But here it just seems a little bit more forced, a little bit more like, oh, let's take this idea, this idea, this idea. Um, you know, the fact that you have uh, the, 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 at the time, growing in popularity, uh, kid actor, um, Xie Mao, you know, doing his kung fu shtick. And and trying to form this kind of like tension based bond with Chow Yun Fat, so there's a kid there who's had girlfriends uh, all over twenty and all were fat. Fat humor, you know. Again, Wong Jing, really. Okay, we we'll go. And, and he he has a picture of them, and they're all in the picture. <laughs> I like that. Here are my three girlfriends, and I got them to pose. For the for a lot of it, it just feels like you know. Again, they're they're pigeonholing things that have been utilized before and worked before maybe not working quite as well here a a little bit of trivia though in this scene in this first scene when they're kind of in the in the cafe hotel getting to know each other there is a mention of uh the toon moon sex maniac so for those of you who've listened to the podcast on fire episode about the rapist uh, or that was a this week in sleaze episode i think uh, of the rapist uh they make mention of that uh, very briefly in the, in that scene. In, very unpleasant story. Good movie. The Rapist is actually a very good movie. Yeah. Unpleasant story. By the way, what was Lord Kai Ying's... He's a wonderful actor, but what was his cameo as this undercover agent about called Simon Tart? <laughs> I, 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 think think I, mi- I think I'm missing something here. Or it's just a silly, silly bit they wrote. There may be something more to that that I'm not... You know, maybe there was something going on in Hong Kong at the time because that was before I was here That that's referencing piece of pop culture but i'm not familiar i think it was just a silly name you know instead of james bond it's simon tart <laughs> that's all i could think of and of course it's laga ying so it's great you know he's <laughs> it is it is rather great but it's one of those like i think the movie's stalling okay we at least it's laga ying torturing elvis Choi with his smelly feet elvis Choi uh, taking a minor bite out of someone's feet Maybe Lo Ying himself, like, go in method, like you read about. like He's a trooper for sure. <laughs> well, well, he's always been game, obviously, appearing in these various Category 3 movies. I'm sure, like, sucking someone's toe is, or biting someone's toe is child's play for him, you know? Yeah. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, it's like, okay, Elvis, we're going to put you in this movie with uh, Amy Yip. Okay, sure, no problem. Okay, Elvis, now we're going to stick Lock Ha Ying's little toe up your nose. Well, <laughs> let me think about that. Absolutely. Like they do it without him. So, yeah, so it, it's it's a cameo, I suppose. But, the, you know, it's so, it felt like because his performance was so big, Lock Ha Ying, I am Condor and I am undercover agent Simon Tart. And he, so it's very, um, Speaking in a very dramatic way, you know, almost like he's performing picking opera in a way. The fun, fun itself, in itself, but again, overall, while the fun factor increases a little bit, there's not strong enough content for a two hour movie here or uh, banter between, during the first hour and uh, that template of no one knowing that he's got a gamble. It is never, it never elevates, I suppose. It just, it comes and goes. Uh, some action fun and some comedic fun. It comes and goes until the gambling finale, if you will. And there, there, there's some it's an enjoyable bit where Elvis Choi actually becomes part of the gang and they sneak illegally into Taiwan. And now he he's not. It's not wise to reveal that he's a mainland officer. And when he realizes he's in Taiwan, he loves it. <laughs> No, yeah. yes, I always wanted to come here. So some newly won freedom, but obviously he's lost all rights and he's hassled by the police. I think he tries to buy sausage from uh, uh, that actor who plays the goalie in Shaolin Soccer. I've forgotten his name. Teen Kaiman. That's right. So Elvis is a very, very funny, funny actor too. So that, that that's like a little spark, a little beat that doesn't start elevating the movie, you know. So it's like fun to reference, but... That's then the movie moves on. They they try to move it a bit, you know, uh, move it back into the more to, more traditional action mode. Or we get um, the couple of the characters get kidnapped, and then I guess um, Chingmi Yao's character comes in and has to play a game of blackjack, which is kind of fun because you know as she as each of the opponents she's against are calling for a hit, when they bust, she actually goes and. Hits them. Yeah, kicks <laughs> her ass. Like flying, <laughs> flying drop kicks and stuff. But that, that, that is really distinctive. Her, her re-entry into that movie. And first her red coat and then she takes off the red coat and she has that quite, uh, quite alluring a red dress and uh, a tattoo on one of her breasts as well. They've, uh, they've done a little makeup job on her. So Ching Mi is, for commercial purposes, quite well showed off here. But she, she has the chops to back that up. She, she has, um, she makes an impact. Ching Miao, obviously gorgeous, but she makes an impact and uh, br- brings attitude. You know, she wasn't just a jingle that didn't know any better, but she she brought some to the screen, I think. Again, though, we start to get a little bit more repetitive. Some of the previous characters uh, start to show up as we build, you know, to the days before the big battle. There is a little bit of a funny reversal, though, where because Ko Chan is not supposed to reveal his identity, at least for two more days, so he takes up the role, basically, of Knife, <laughs> of Andy Lau's character. He tries, and, and I give Chai Yun-Fat credit, to do his best Andy Lau uh, <laughs> impression. It's not that entirely successful, but it is funny in his attempts, and, and he sings a couple songs in places. So, so there's, there's, there's a couple moments there that I really liked and, and made me laugh. And yeah, I mean, I don't have much other notes. I mean, it, the... Minor note, I suppose, where I think uh, the second shootout, if you will, works a lot better versus the first shootout in the movie, that it gets quite greatly absurd. It's not particularly well pulled off, but it gets pretty greatly absurd when Chai Fat catches 
clips with bullets, you know, mid air and they, they slide neatly into, into the thing. I don't know anything about guns, but <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't need to, to, to insert them himself and then he can't continue shooting, but it's not particularly thrilling. And they use a lot of like this slow motion step printing that looks a bit blurry on screen, which, uh, isn't, uh, particularly appealing, but I do like the silly comedic beats within this that Tony Long is hiding by stepping into one of those big, big clocks and having the, the, uh, the camp, uh, what are they called? The things on the clock in his mouth, you know, he dre- he dresses up like a clock essentially, like, and fools bad guys that way, which is absurd, of course. But then you get Elvis Choi hiding. Do you remember how he hid from everyone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> his was even better from, for me. <laughs> Cause his look kind of looked realistic for, uh, you know, a second or two. You're like, wait, wait a minute. Okay, and he did, yeah. he did it in seconds, but what, what did, what does he do as a matter of fact to hide? <laughs> he basically just, I don't, he puts something on. I don't know if it's mud or something, but he basically looks like a bronze statue or a stone statue of some sort, right? And it, it's kind of effective, actually. Uh, but how he got it done so fast is, of course, uh, one of the mysteries of cinema. That level is not bad for the movie to operate that, but it's uh, it sparks, um, and it's not enough to bring it out of being overall a chore and tedious, but also somewhat fairly entertaining at the same time. It, it helps that the gambling finale is okay. Wong Jing shows, again, some comfort in being around the table again, if you will. And uh, he adds the uh, element of a magician, played by uh, Wong Kam Kong, who can uh, transform cards. And that's and he's on uh, Wu Xing Kuo's side, so they're going to set up Ko Chun that way. So it, it, it doesn't top the first Gambit finale, but it is okay. It is okay. I mean, uh, that's... When, like, the movie's long, yeah, but it didn't stall the movie or anything. And, uh, that intercut in between what's on the table and, uh, Ching Miao and Tony Long and Elvis Choi reacting by the side and all the audience members and the stakes being higher and higher. It's okay. It's okay. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, so there you are. Yeah. For me, it doesn't work quite as well. And unfortunately, it goes back to the shootout. While there were some funny moments in the shootout, uh, they do one thing which is just unforgivable for me. And a little bit of a spoiler here. Spoiler here. So uh, if you haven't watched the film, why are you listening to this podcast? Go watch the film first, people. There's a scene where uh, basically Shemao, the little kid, is you know, he goes in and he starts fighting with Ken Lo's character. He gets a nice little dropkick in. Uh, but then Ken Lo's character uh, manages to get a hold of uh, Jacqueline Wu. And uh, I, I don't remember exactly how the exchange happened, but uh, they basically put the guns down and then kick the guns up uh, and then shoot Ken Lo's character, but he gets some shots off and he basically has shot uh, the little guitar, little guitar, uh, Jacqueline Wu's character. And so she's shot at what looks to be in the side, okay? Looks to be in the side. She's sitting on the bed and she's, you know, saying, oh, I'm dying. Ko-chun, can you please, you know, turn around so I can see you and and pretend that, you know, you're my man or something like this. And she has these visions of them dancing together. Okay. Now in the previous movie, uh, we had, uh, the dragon character get shot like two or three times. Chai and fat's gotten shot. Uh, Chai and fat got shot with, a the spears, the, what are the, the harpoons, uh, earlier in the, you know, so, I mean, people are just getting all kinds of wounds all over the place and then brushing it off and, you know, walking in slow motion and everything. And poor Jacqueline just gets, winged basically for for hong kong movie purposes she's just winged 
and she's gone. And I'm like, what a complete waste. And again, I know why they're doing it. They're trying to add to that, to compound that hatred for the villain here. But you don't need to do that. You already had the baby in the bottle <laughs> on the shelf. You're not going to, you know, this, so, so her death here was really meaningless and was unfortunate because, you know, that's, that it, was ne- it was unnecessary. It was an unnecessary use for the character. It didn't add to anything. And I think they could have done much more narratively had they taken that in a different direction. And, of course, that leads us into the, the big card game, the reveal, and nobody's really shocked when, you know, Ko Chun comes out and it's not, it's not Tony Lung. They don't really make much of that. Um, we are given a, a final shot by the uh, old man, uh, Chan Kam Singh, kind of before the shootout. And something's happened to him. But who cares about him? Right. Because he <laughs> exactly. was the bad guy in like two other movies. So, you know, it's like now we're supposed to feel sympathy. Uh, so that was kind of thrown in there for, for naught. For shock, essentially. Yeah, but again, it's again, baby in the bottle. Nothing's going to shock me by this yeah. point, right? <laughs> Here's Wu Chin Lian in a big bottle. What do you think of yeah. that? Right. Oh. Whatever. <laughs> I was, you know, I was literally saying in my South Park voice, "You bastards! You killed Jacqueline!" You know, <laughs> screw you guys. I'm going home. <laughs> yeah, I'm going home. I wish. Um, no, th- but they get to the game, and I, I'm just—I don't know. I'm, of course, all those things are here. There's a long con going on. Um, you know, that's kind of interesting. But then at the same time, it's kind of pulling back from stuff we've already established in this universe in other movies. So I thought that that was kind of a a weird direction to take it to say that okay, yeah, we've got people who can do these kinds of things, but now we're going to take a step back from that and actually, um, what you think is going on is is not what's going on. Uh, it's still, for the most part, like you said, I think the the way they shoot it, the way they film it, there's tension there. Um, it's entertaining. But then it just ends. He walks, walking up the stairs, turns around, big Miss Hong Kong pageant wave, and freeze frame roll credits. And I'm thinking, what? No epilogue? I mean, the first movie gave us this really nice sort of touching epilogue yeah. with the characters. It, 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 it felt like it had direction. It felt like, okay... You know, there's more to this story. It was a nice feeling. Here, we've got none of that. We've gotten, you know, the 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 Shem Al character. He just kind of disappears. We don't see him. We don't know what happens with Tony Lung's character. Does he hook up with Ching Mi Yao or not? Um, is he now the third disciple? What well, you know, it, none of that is, is present here. And I think because of what they were doing again, they're trying to to compound everything. They're trying to be over the top. They're trying to do more than all the other films have done so far. The only way that they could have done that successfully, I think, would have been to bring in cameos by Andy Lau and Stephen Chow. And you, if you think about what has happened in the context of this thing, right, their, their mentor, their master, you know, had this tragic thing happen to his wife, their Simo, as she would be called in Cantonese. You know, you think they're not going to find out over the course of a year that this thing has happened you think that that's not going to get to them and they're not going to be totally enraged and want to do something about that? The lack of their presence here. I mean, I know that it's coming. It, it comes down to outside of, you know, things happening outside of the movie. Andy was big. Stephen Chow was getting big. They probably didn't want it. Cameo would have been feasible, though, I think. I think they could have and, and, and should have tried to, to really work that in. It would have made this movie feel much more grounded in the universe. And, and I think it would have been... Uh, it would have it would have been that over the top ending that people were expecting uh, for this film that just 
really, unfortunately, wasn't there. So, uh, you know, I, I know I'm sounding really down on this film. And I think in the scope of the series, I mean, if we go to some of the more extreme outside, you know, gambling films like Saint of Gamblers and stuff, I mean, there's there's films that are far less entertaining than this one. Those, the, the parts are somehow better than the whole, if that makes sense, right? Um, and, and that's kind of how this film left me. Can't, can't argue against that, and I won't. Uh, it's almost like Wong Jing reverting to that. Wong Jing you kind of shamelessly like, but can also rip apart because it, it doesn't cohere and that doesn't, like the pieces doesn't fall into place as well as they did. I mean, he, he, he caps the movie, the, like the last joke of the movie is an AIDS joke. And like, come on, Wong Jing. I mean, did you really need to do that? Wong, um, Tony Leung and Elvis Choi after Kuchun wins, wins the whole thing. They kiss. And I think Tony Leung says, Oh my God, I have AIDS now. I have AIDS now. I have kissed a guy. Like, come on, dude. I mean, did, in two hours, of, yeah. you desperately needed to fit that in. I, I, I can sort of smile, but look away at the same time because it's, it's kind of embarrassing that they, he needed to rely on that. Uh, uh, it's not what brings the house down and brings in the awards that you conjured up an AIDS joke. But there it is. Well, I talked in the first film about how, you know, sometimes the technology will root the film in a certain time period, like with the computer image. And sometimes the humor will, too. Because, yeah, you know, making a gag about AIDS was very much something that they was a go-to thing for this time period. I think in this, I want to say in God of Gamblers, Roman numeral 2, they go back to the uh, Indian guy who's in the first one with the dogs. And I think there's a joke about him, like, going back to fight in Iraq because it's around the time of the first Iraq War, too. Um, and so it's kind of like, you know, again, centering it in that particular time period. It's kind of Wong Jing's shtick that I sometimes don't agree with, that it's not that he um, makes jokes about current events, current celebs, current gossip. And it's it's just him mentioning stuff and then transferring to the movies. You know, it's not necessarily a clever satire. Something happened in the news, we said it in the movie. Ah, but, you know, it, it, I'm not being down on Wong Jing as such. I, I, I love the guy as much as I can criticize a fair chunk of his movies, uh, too. You know, one of my favorite movies is Boys Are Easy and God of Gamblers. I mean, it's, uh, and Boys Are Easy, I'm sure, contains some inappropriate stuff, but, uh, that's just where he brings energy. He brings comedic energy and he inspired gags and inspired, uh, concepts. You know, so it, you're kind of allowed, I guess, a misstep or two when you're inspired. In other places, in God of Gambit's Return, it's it's shaky all throughout, so it sticks out even more in that regard. Any other spontaneous notes before I do the availability? No, I you know I'd say that uh, despite all the negativity I've thrown at this film, uh, if you haven't seen it, do give it a watch. It's not hard to sit through, and uh, as Paul said, uh, the some of the parts are really good, but the whole isn't uh, very uh, distinctive. It's a middle of the road kind of thing, but uh, hey. Do give it a watch, as uh, Paul said. And as for availability, same dealio as with the first one. And may our remaster is um, the recommended disc. Uh, it does come with the original Dolby track, so they didn't leave that off because that, that often happened with movies. That, because companies don't really know what 
to look for and what to dig up. You have, you have Dolby presentations on Laserdisc that wasn't ported to DVD and so forth. But it is there, and it's paired up with God of Gamblers in a two-disc set, and uh, both single and two-disc set is listed at, as out of stock and possibly out of print currently. So, But I hope you get it, and uh, that's a good value pack, if you will. That's the Chime Fat Run. So next time this um, series of three begins taking on the Stephen Chow run of gambling movies, some of which were not done by Wong Jing, or one was not done by Wong Jing that we are going to cover. So next episode is our discussion and review of what can be argued, and maybe definitely is, Stephen Chow's breakthrough role in All for the Winner from 1989, directed by Jeff Lau and Corey Yun. And we also look at God of Gamblers 2. But not God of Gamblers Return, but God of Gamblers 2. That sees the universes merge as Stephen Chow pairs up with, if my memory is right, it is actually Andy Lau's character from God of Gamblers 1 that Stephen Chow is paired up with. Do you remember that offhand? No, it's 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 nice. But uh, for now, this has been the first gambling season uh, the retrospective of the God of Gamblers series on the Podcast on Fire network uh, in the show Podcast on Fire. We are on podcastonfire.com. Uh, check out our shows and bonus episodes. Email us if you have any feedback. Podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Like our page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash PUF network. Join the discussion group. Just search Podcast on Fire network to find it. Our Twitter handle is at Podcast on Fire. I write about Hong Kong movies and Taiwanese movies and ninja movies and various adult movies at SoGoodReviews.com and I do little video reviews at SleazyKVideo.com and my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. And Podcast on Fire is on iTunes. If you like this gambling season, please let us know either via star rating and on a star rating and if you have the time, please leave a written comment up there as well. We would love to see more. And finally, stream us on Stitcher if you don't like filling your devices with podcasts you can stream us very in a very reliable manner they have an online presence but the best way to stream us is via the applications on the apple app store and google play and for reference sake uh, mention the podcast you do paul and where you are on the web yeah we are on the east screen west screen you can find us over on the website kongcast k-o-n-g-c-a-s-t.com and of course all the relevant stuff you know stitcher uh, itunes all that good stuff Right on. So, uh, Paul, we'll see you for take two of uh, gambling season, and hopefully, it won't ruin us and make us uh, make us make us uh, waste our money on the gambling tables. I doubt it because I, gambling is not only a, a uh, like a strange world to me; it's also pretty damn boring to me. <laughs> I agree. We are done anyway for this episode. So, see you for next uh, next gambling session, if you will, during the season, Paul. So, thank you very much for coming on. I always enjoy this. So, uh, yeah. Thank you for having me, as always. Excellent, excellent. You're welcome. And uh, yeah, signing off. We'll see you. Bye-bye. <laughs>